If you'll join me, today's scripture reading is from Haggai 2, 3 to 5. In our Pew Bibles, this is page 791. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. This is the word of the Lord. Happy New Year. Good morning. Um, if you were here last week, it was a message of rebuke. And um, so I apologize for that now. But this morning will be one of encouragement. So um, something to be more encouraging for the first Sunday of 2020. Um, I, I do find it easier to be uh, more on the rebuking side. Maybe it's me being a father or something. But I, I always... It's just easier to point out things you need to improve on, right? It's just like easy to see those things and to point those things out. But, but this morning is about strengthening. It's about encouragement, which I think is what a lot of the Word of God is about. So let's take a look at verses 1 through 3 here. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the Word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Now, before we jump into this, we need a little bit of context as to who Haggai was speaking to back at this time. It's October 520 B.C., and these were a group of Jews who were very disheartened. They were weary. They were discouraged uh, after coming from Babylon not too long ago where they were held in captivity. And the Lord used Haggai to strengthen, encourage these people. And so maybe you're wondering how. Well, on the first day of the seventh, and the first day of the seventh month is the Feast of Trumpets. And then on the 10th day of the month was the Day of Atonement. And then on the 15th through the 21st of the month was the Feast of Tabernacles, where Jews would remember how God uh, preserved them in the wilderness. So if you go into the Orthodox sections of Israel today, you'll see that during the Feast of Tabernacles, people will put up these tents and everyone will be sleeping outside and some of them, some of them are really decked out. They'll have the lights and there's TVs and everything's inside them and they're sleeping outside and video games and all that kind of stuff is going on. Really, really cool. But this is how they would commemorate, remember how God delivered them in the Exodus in the wilderness and so they would camp out for essentially a week to remember this. So we're told that it was the 21st day of the month in verse 1, which means that the Feast of Tabernacles was coming to an end. And so put your mindset in, in here for a moment. We just had Thanksgiving. We just had Christmas. We just had New Year's Day. And then at the end of that, what happens? Reality. <laughs> and it's the same for these people. Right? They just had feast, day of atonement, tabernacles, 
reality. And so that reality starts peeking through and all the realities of life start coming through and that dose of reality just hits you in the face and when you get that credit card bill that shows you how much you spent in the month of December. And that the debt that you're trying to pay down is actually bigger now. And that you're actually starting to get all your paperwork for your taxes in 2019 you didn't realize you owe that much. Right? All the realities. And so it was for the people of God in Judah. They, they came off of these well-known feasts and celebrations to be confronted with reality. And the reality was that even though they had these feasts and these celebrations, the, the, the harsh reality was that they still didn't have a temple. And it wasn't that they didn't try to rebuild one, because 16 years before this moment, they tried. You look at the end of Ezra chapter 3, Ezra wrote about how some of the people wept at the rebuilding. Why? Because it wasn't like the temple Solomon built. It was just this temple that they were trying to build and they were just like, oh, this thing's a piece of junk. And so the older folks that were there who, who saw the first temple and they remembered what it was like, they couldn't rejoice at the rebuild because they were just thinking like, man, what we used to have, it was like, gold and it was so tall and like all this stuff and beautiful drapery and all these things. This is a pile of junk. And so these were people who remembered those better years in Judah's history, how things were in the past and they couldn't get past how things used to be. This is something that we need to be really careful about. We need to be careful with thinking like that, with how we deal with our past, because the past can do a couple of things. It can excite us, it can inspire us, it can motivate us to move forward with this present future that we have, or it can stifle you and suppress you and discourage you to move forward with the present future that you have. And so the past can serve to be this great encouragement, or it can serve to be a great paralysis. The past can help stimulate us and move us forward, or it can hold us back in bondage with just these debilitating shackles. Now, sometimes the past holds us back, and, and the cycle that we're stuck in, it, it just needs to be broken for us to come to a reality that there really isn't a reason for that to have that sort of power over you. And so here we have Haggai who is sympathetic to his people and telling them, be free, live free. Stop letting your past prevent you from experiencing a really bright future. Rather than looking at your circumstances and those past circumstances, let's look at past promises. Look at the promises of the scriptures, not Solomon's temple. Stop living in the nostalgia of Solomon's temple and live in this current reality where God delivered us from Babylonian captivity. We're free. And God is still working in us. And then within all of these well-known feasts and celebrations is this promise that needs to be heard, and it's at the end of verse 4, for I am with you. For I am with you. That's the promise. And building up to that promise is this key scripture for this section found in verse 4 where the phrase be strong is repeated three times in that verse. And this is a literary 
way for the author to emphasize something because there's no exclamation point, there's no highlight, there's no bold, there's no italic, there's no comic sans if people still use that. They repeat things. So they repeat this three times. Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Now another way to interpret be strong is take courage. Be strong, take courage. And it's a phrase of encouragement that we often need to hear. But it needs to be more than just a phrase that we just kind of throw out there. It needs to be a phrase that has some substance attached to it because it's so easy to tell somebody, be strong, take courage. It's so easy just to say that. There needs to be something beyond the lip service. There needs to be a reason behind the strength, behind the courage, behind having a fresh heart to move forward. It's getting chilly outside and, and someone who feels that cold in their bones, maybe your words will encourage them if you say, be strong. Or if you say, take courage. Maybe not. I would venture to say, probably not. It would go a lot further if you went with a warm meal and you said, take courage. Or if you brought a warm drink and said, be strong. Or a sleeping bag. Or a tent. Or something. From the prophet Haggai, this is more than just mere words. This is a solid encouragement by the grace of God that there is something of substance behind this encouragement. And it's found in the latter part of verse 4 and into verse 5. It says, Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Now, we read that there's something to be done at the end of verse 4. It says, work. So the words, be strong, they're not just empty words. Haggai was pointing back to a promise, God is with you, a covenant God made with his people that the Lord of hosts was with them, and it wasn't an empty promise, it was a covenant. Now, for some of you, you might be familiar with covenant language and how serious it is, and for others, this may need a little bit more um, highlighting. And so what we need to do is we need to look at this phrase that's, that's in verse 5, and it reads, according to the covenant that I made. I made. The Lord of hosts made a covenant. But the word made there is kind of a rated G, pretty mild description of what happens in a covenant. The more descriptive, rated R, raw way of describing this, interpreting this would be to say, according to the covenant that I cut, that I cut. So for example, a farm to table chef can tell you, I made this steak for you. But that chef really left out a lot of things of how that piece of meat ended up on your plate. Like that calf was birthed and it was raised and then it was slaughtered, killed, hung for a few days or for a few weeks and then butchered in pieces, cut for you to have that steak. See, made is just a nice way to say that they made the steak for you. 
He didn't say like, yeah, I killed that thing, bled it, hung it, chopped it in pieces, and blood and everything's all over the place. Bon appetit. Like, they don't say that, right? It was killed. How many of you will now be vegetarian? Probably none. I was hoping to move you. <laughs> Back to the covenant of the Lord. Cut. Cut. You see that it wasn't as simple as a covenant was made. I made a covenant. It was that the sacrifice of life, that it was cut for you. Life was taken for you. According to the covenant that I cut for you. The cutting of this covenant occurred at the cutting of an animal. That the animal was sacrificed as part of this covenant. As a part of this treaty. That blood was spilled. That life was lost. Why so bloody? Why so gory? Why take the life of this innocent animal? Why all this stuff that seems so barbaric? And that's such an archaic way of doing things. Here's why. It signified the gravity of the covenant. That if the one who made this promise, this covenant, did not fulfill what they said, then the same thing that happened to that animal will happen to the person who made the covenant and broke it. So you see how serious it is. You see that the covenant actually has a curse attached to it in that if I don't keep my promises, then the same thing that happened to that animal happens to me. May I be cut up like a sacrifice, like that was cut up if I don't keep my word. This was the Lord showing, when I make a promise, I keep it. I, I mean it. Whatever the promise is, it will come to pass. That's how serious it is for me. And so for those of us who have made those marriage covenants, may you think twice before breaking any promises. This is where Haggai is taking us. Right? This is where God is taking us. You go back to the promise God made to Moses in Exodus 3, when Moses made all sorts of excuses as to why he couldn't go back to Egypt to set those people free from bondage. I can't speak. I, I stutter, whatever. And, and the promise, what was the promise? Moses, I'm with you. I'm with you. Yahweh is Lord, who is, who is present with his people in whatever circumstances they find themselves in. And this is our Lord's promise to us. I'm with you. A covenant. A promise. Continuing on in verse 5. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. So be strong. God is with you. God's spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Those are all promises that we can cling to as the living God made those promises to us. And there were many reasons for the people of God in 520 BC to be really afraid. That they were this small minority group of people that had enemies all around them and even within their camp. Enemies who could wipe them out at any time. But they weren't wiped out because God was with them. God had a promise. And if there was any suggestion that perhaps God had abandoned them, they could always turn back to the scriptures and read the covenants cut by God. I am with you. 
I am with you. You see, our circumstances aren't very good at gauging what is really happening because our circumstances change all the time. Circumstances come and then they go, but it's the promise. It's the covenant of the Lord that is everlasting. I am with you. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. You can be strong because of the promise of the covenant, not because of your circumstances, not because things are going good, because pretty soon things are not going to go good. But you always have the promise. So where does this weakness, where did this fear come from if those people, those people in Judah knew these promises? How, how did they ever get to this place of discouragement? Look back to verse 3. And you'll notice it's a, it's a place where much of our own insecurities, much of our own fears and discouragement come from. And it's this one word, comparison. Any of you who have siblings, you know this is true. Right? You know this is true. Read verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? They compared what they were building to Solomon's temple. How are you going to even compare? These are exiles who were in the Babylonian captivity 16 years before who don't have a shekel to their name. Comparing to Solomon, arguably even today, the wealthiest man to ever live. And so they saw, some of them saw what Solomon built. And then they're seeing what they're built. And they're like, our socks. Like, this is horrible. Now in the Christian life, as living temples... If you compare your temple, you, to other temples, you might find yourself pretty miserable. You're going to be comparing your rocks and your attempts and your loose foundation to a Solomon. And when you compare your worst to someone's best, because you probably don't see their worst, it's going to get pretty discouraging. This is why I hate social media. Because it usually gives you the highlights of one's life and it doesn't share the not so good stuff about their life. And so you look at what are you doing on New Year's Eve? And they're at this awesome place with awesome drinks and awesome food and beautiful people. And then they don't highlight the dude that was going to sleep at 9.30 because they were alone and ordered takeout pizza. Like, they don't highlight that. They don't show that. And so we compare ourselves to the good stories of other people's lives. We compare ourselves to people who have a supposedly successful way of overcoming their circumstances that we're still trying to overcome ourselves, which can serve as an encouragement for a little while. But after hearing success story and success story that... You aren't able to overcome yourself and you're still stuck in the doldrums of your supposed failure. You start wondering, what's wrong with me? Why can't I overcome that addiction, bad relationship, terrible job, 
whatever it may be. All these people ahead of me. How come my ministry isn't flourishing like those people I see? How come they bring so many people to the Lord? Or how come they disciple so many people? How come they can move and shake and do all these kind of things for the kingdom of God or at their job or whatever it is? There are good people who are experiencing a supposed insignificance because you feel you don't have that huge impact on other people's lives that you read about, that you hear about, that you see in the media, and you wonder, my work isn't all that exciting. What I do and how I live my life, and no one's going to write a story about me. I just live my life. I just go to work every day, and I try to provide for myself, or I try to provide for my family, uh, my I go to church every week. I go on church Sunday and I, I go to worship to adore God publicly in a community of worshipers. And I go about nurturing myself and my friends and my children, my family, by encouraging their faith through my own faith. And so I, I pray and I study the Bible and I, I'm faithfully being obedient in the midst of what's going on around me and in the world, but I still don't feel like I'm a successful Christian because I'm not doing more stuff. Maybe you're comparing. And that's a dangerous thing to do. If you're not careful with your comparisons, you're going to drive yourself into misery. And we really need to be careful about comparing ourselves to others because we really don't know if our comparisons are even accurate. We only know what we know, and it's limited. We don't know everything going on in other people's lives, even people who seem to have it all together, because they don't. I've been doing pastoral ministry for about 20 years now, and the person you're comparing yourself to doesn't have all their stuff together. They don't. They come into my office or we meet at a cafe or whatever. They look like they have everything together. They look nice. They smell nice. You know, they showered for a meeting and stuff like that. So it's, it's all good. And they even paid for my coffee. So they're generous people and all, all this stuff. And everything looks great. And then they tell me what's going on. And I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised by any of it. There's stuff that people are dealing with. Or if things are just hunky-dory right now, they're going to deal with eventually something pops up in life where it's just not so good and so if you compare yourself your temple to someone else's it can drive you into misery i am with you all of you god is with you my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. That's a promise from the Lord for us. And then there's a purpose God wants us to see. A purpose that the Lord has for us. Verses 6 through 9. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house, this crumbly rebuilt temple, with glory, says the Lord of hosts. And he's saying more so than this Solomon temple. The silver's mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. This 
heap of rocks is going to be greater than that, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Because that one's gone already. So what's the purpose? Hear what the, hear what the Lord is saying here. Everything's going to be shaken. Everything. The whole universe. Solomon's temple was built with all those treasures. It is gone. It was shaken and the Lord owns it all. And so you think that that temple was glorious? You haven't seen anything yet. You haven't seen anything. This temple that you're looking at, you think that it's really unimpressive. You think that it's a place unworthy of worship. You, you, you think it's just the, the junk. But it's the very place that is the beginning of the Lord's unshakable kingdom. Unshakable. The people of Judah were working on a temple to worship the Lord in sacrifice, in prayer, adoration, praise. And that temple was just unimpressive. And it doesn't seem at all a place to give glory to God. But with this temple that looks so unworthy, will come a time that God will shake the universe and the Lord will give his people an unshakable kingdom. This is the purpose that God has for his people back then, in that temple, it's the purpose God has for us in our living temples today. You might think you're a piece of junk. You're just a heap of stone. You're not going to amount to whatever that's going to be. God is with you. He cut that promise. He's with you. You have nothing to fear. The Spirit remains with you. You have to remember that that group of people, they were a reviled group of exiles. They were just outcasts of Babylon and just kicked back to Judah. And God would begin a new work with that remnant of people who were once in bondage to rebuild a temple. And the Lord often begins his wonderful work with just that very humble beginning. That's how it often is. So you see how significant the work that you do is every day or that you coming to church on Sunday every week is. The everyday work that you do that you think is just not meaningful in fact is. It is. Because what you are doing is that you are bringing significance in the final purpose of God. How? Whatever it is that you're doing that seems ordinary and mundane, you are the actual one who is ambassador for the Lord and has been given the opportunity to sprinkle it with God's glory. That's awesome! Who else is going to do that in your workplace? Who else is going to do that in your classroom or in your business or whatever it may be? Who else gets that opportunity to bring the glory of God with them and just, okay, give you some. And so just like that remnant of exiles in Judah who were building this unimpressive temple, they were the 
humble beginning of what God will do to bring the fullness of the Lord's kingdom. And like those exiles, we today may be doing something that seems insignificant when we clock in and we clock out, when in fact it is the beginning of something that will bring glory and splendor to the name of the Lord. You and I get to do that. Doing something like gathering for public worship on Sunday. You might be wondering, why do we do this every week? Why do we do this? Because even when we pray, our, our, our prayers are like imperfect. And when we sing, our worship is far from perfect. And when we give our tithes and offerings, even though they're not as gifts as they should be. And, and when we listen attentively to the word of the Lord being preached, even though some of you have fallen asleep, when we do our best, you know, week after week, we're, what are we doing here? We're rehearsing. We're rehearsing. And we're getting closer to the real show. Yeah. Revelation 4 is coming. You gotta... Work, right? Work those vocal cords. And this, so this is a weekly rehearsal where you and I can always do better. We can always do better. And so we can improve upon our humble beginnings, what this is. And our weekly gatherings can have a greater significance for the kingdom of God. There is so much that we can do. The work spoken of in verse 4. And I just want to throw out one suggestion of work. Of intercessory prayer for each other. That we pray for one another more fervently. To pray for the salvation of those who don't know Jesus Christ. Whom we love dearly. And to join others in their prayer for their loved ones. To, to come to the knowledge of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Just really simple but consistent intercessory prayers to redeem lost souls for eternity. And we don't know what the Lord will do with those simple prayers that we pray. And whatever humble work the Lord has in front of us, we just don't know what the living God is going to do with the humble work that we do. So, whatever work that is in front of us when you clock in and clock out, we have the opportunity to, to sprinkle the glory of the Lord on it where our humble work can turn into something glorious. God has a purpose in our work. And I'd like to close the message with the latter part of verse 9. It reads, And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. God will give peace. But you need to notice something about this peace, that it's given after the shaking of nations. Right? Verses 6 through 9, all that shaking. God will shake the nations in judgment, and then there will be peace. See, this is the pathway to peace. This is how peace is achieved. It, it's not going to be through some social process or through some policy. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be advocates of, of work that is championing policy or championing social work. We should be doing those things. That is good work. It's that we can't rely on those things for long-lasting peace because those are temporary things with temporary people. 
in order to get things right, there needs to be justice before things are set right, and then we can proceed with peace. It's too often that we hear of people who want justice without judgment. Right? They just want the justice peace because they hate the judgment peace. Let's not do the judgment peace. Let's not have people do what they owe or pay for things. Let's just forgive everybody. Let's just all get together, hold hands, and sing kumbaya, and then we'll be all be good. Like, let's just do that. Let's skip the judgment. But you can't skip judgment to have justice. I've been involved in um, social justice work here in Oakland with the faith community for like two decades. One of the most popular verses quoted in these circles is Isaiah chapter two, verse four, and Micah chapter four, verse three. Let me read it to you. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Doesn't that sound beautiful? Isn't that wonderful? The part I have issue with is they leave out the first part. Here's what's often left out. Read Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And this is Micah 4, 3. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. See, there's a judgment from God before there's peace. God brings justice and he's the one to bring eternal peace and it's not us. So oftentimes we think it's, oh yeah, I, I gotta do it. I'm the one that's gonna bring peace. I'm gonna do this stuff. But it's not us. I will give peace. Jesus will give peace. After Jesus was born, Luke chapter two, he's brought to the temple and a sacrifice was made uh, the old guy Simeon's there, and he declares this in verse 29. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. That was at the birth of Jesus. Now look at the picture of the death of Jesus, Matthew 27, starting in verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. That curtain was a barrier between God and people. It was torn in two as the earth shook and the rocks split for us to experience peace. From the temple, God would give peace through Jesus that we are reconciled to God. There's reason to be strong because we have God's promise of I am with you, that we have a purpose to work with the living temple we have, regardless of how humble and ordinary that work may be. We have peace through what happened in the temple when Jesus Christ was dedicated for our peace and the finishing work of that peace through his death as evidence as the curtain was torn in two from the Holy of Holies through the rest of the temple. Now Haggai refers us to the Lord of hosts six times just in this passage. 14 times through the entire book. Why this title? Why is this title emphasized so much? Because it points to the one who is all-powerful. He hosts everything, all resources, all forces, 
He is the host of all those things. They are at his command. That the Lord of hosts is in control. That's our God. This is why we can take courage. This is why we can be strong. We have a God who is fully sufficient in himself. He is the Lord of hosts. He hosts it all. Our strength isn't dependent on who we are. Our strength is dependent on who God is, the Lord of hosts. That is why we can be strong. Let's pray. Lord, we acknowledge that you are indeed the Lord of hosts, the one who is in control, the one who is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving. And God, we are so thankful for your word, so thankful for this encouragement. And we pray, Lord, for your blessing upon your people. We pray, Lord, that they would indeed be able to go back to the scriptures and in this reality to know that you are indeed with them, that you are their God, that you will not leave them, that your spirit is in their midst and they don't have reason to fear. You're in control of all time, whether that is from our birth to our death. And so, Lord, we lay it before you knowing that you cut that covenant with us, that you keep to your word. Thank you so much, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.